Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hey Yeti, what's shaking? Yeah, I did see that Megaton was crowdfunding on Kickstarter now. I love that book. I was in backer for the single issues myself. That whole creative team is great. I love Fernando Pinto's artwork, and it reminds me so much of hanging out with my friends in middle school and playing Nintendo, well, minus the giant mutant bugs from outer space swooping in and trying to take over part. Wait, you can make a transformation sound? Who knew? Yeah, that power gauntlet is cool. Whatever Derek touches can transform him into an alien annihilating mech. Even a hot dog cart, too. Too funny. Where can people go to back it? They can head on over to Kickstarter and search for Mechaton, M-E-C-H-A-T-O-N, or just check the show notes. I'll make it easy for them. It runs all of February, and it's awesome that everything is done and looks like a really quick turnaround for backers. And that exclusive Jason Muir cover is awesome. He's doing Spider-Man stuff now. Did you just really say Fuyo? You gotta get off TikTok, man. This is Byron O'Neill, your host for today's episode of the Cryptic Creator Corner Podcast. Today I'm chatting with award-winning author and illustrator Robin Ha, whose work Almost American Girl and Cook Korean, a comic book with recipes you are likely already familiar with. Most recently, though, Robin has a new historical graphic novel injected with a bit of fantasy, The Fox Maidens. From Balzer and Bray, HarperCollins, hitting stores this month, which is the focus of today's show. Robin, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. How's it going? Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm doing great. <laughs> Good to hear. Well, I got a chance to read an advanced copy of The Fox Maidens and really, really enjoyed it. There's a lot going on in the story. To kind of give everyone the basic beats, you have a young girl, Kai Song, who has dreams of breaking down some of the cultural norms in 16th century Korea by following in her father's footsteps and becoming a great martial artist. Her father tracked, uh, you'll have to excuse me if I pronounce some of these words wrong. Um, her father tracked down and killed Gamiho. Is that? Am yeah. I, am I, okay, great. Um, the nine tailed fox demon for the magistrate, kind of gaining prestige and status for the family. But there's a lingering rumor about a familial connection to the creature. As Kai struggles with accepting her role as a woman in the male and class dominated societal structure, she must come to grips with and deal with the secrets of her family's past that is wrapped up in her own destiny and identity so kai is going through quite a lot here <laughs> let's mm-hmm. let's kind of start with the setting because that provides the the kind of architectural backbone for the story so you've already made a, a memoir focusing on your own immigration story from korea to america at a very formational age you know in almost american girl if that was a personal story this feels like the journey of korean women more as a whole to some extent so why I set it up in in that time period specifically? First of all, I love historical dramas. So one, some of my favorite K dramas are like the Saguk, we call it. Uh, yeah. It's set in Joseon period, and they're wearing costume. And I'm just like really fascinated with like the visual of that time period. And also, um, I mean, things have really changed a lot in Korea and the world in the last four or five hundred years. But still, I think a lot of the uh, problems we have in this modern era 
uh, existed in that time period, but just in a more heightened version. So I think it just gives me also a little bit more freedom to explore these issues that I think is very important now because it's a historical and fantasy. So you can have a little more freedom talking about these very difficult issues in a fictional uh, field. That's okay. that's kind of how I felt when I was writing. Okay. Well, you're kind of reimagining the legend of the Fox Maiden in Korean folklore. Um, I have a thing for Nine Tails, but my reference point is the, the Kitsune, or you know, the, the Japanese mm-hmm. version of the creature. So what makes the Korean version unique, if if anything? Because we have foxtail references in, in mythology from lots of different cultures, like most even right. including some in, in America. So I really don't think there's that much difference between like Kitsune or I think there's a Chinese version of it and there's Vietnamese version of it. Um, because this mythology has existed for a long time, like hundreds, if not thousands of years, that uh, I think a lot of the cultural uh, mythologies between these Eastern Asian um, countries, um, you know, there has been a lot of like going back and forth. So um, I haven't really read that many uh, Japanese or Chinese books about nine-tailed fox, so I'm not really sure you know, if there are actually like huge difference between them, from what I've read, they look basically the same character. They're usually female, but in Korea, I think the uh, older version of this uh, demon character is actually male, um, which I didn't know about until I was doing more research to make this book. I was like, oh, wow, it's, it was actually a, a male uh, character. But in a later... Um, iterations of kumio it's usually female and they all have that uh kind of femme fatale vibe um they're okay. all beautiful and they they can all shape shift into beautiful women and they all have this need to consume human soul so uh they could kind of be like the asian succubus kind of character um right. and um they're usually a villain in all of the stories I've read. Um, but they had more going on that made me want to really explore uh, stories from their perspective instead of them just being one of the villains. And you got exposed to this, um, I was reading in the afterward, the, from a TV show, The Hometown of Folklore. Is, is that right? Yeah. When you were a kid? Yeah, 전설의 고향. It went okay. for a long time. I think it started in the 70s or even if not 60s. And they were going on on and off for probably like 20, 30 years. So when I caught it, it was kind of the last leg of the show, the really long running show. But uh, basically, most of their stories were set in Joseon period. They're all custom drama. Um, Yeah. And they're all mostly ghost stories, very spooky ghost stories. Um, And I, I just love ghost stories since I was young, like. Horror was kind of my genre when I was growing up. Um, I don't know why, <laughs> but I uh, I was always scared by them. I mean, I remember watching those shows and not being able to go to sleep because I was so scared of these monsters, but I kept just watching it. Um, but Kumiho was very different from other ghosts or demons in that show. Most of them were... Um, 
just not very attractive and they were kind of one dimensional. Um, they didn't really have that much like backstory going on. But Kumio just like really stood out to me because she uh, seemed to have a lot of agency of her own instead of just like doing something v- vicious and vengeful or, you know, just uh, being, a, a, you know, like a really evil character. But she just seemed to have a lot more depth to her. And um, it's really unique that she has so much power. Most uh, female characters in these uh, traditional folklore in Korea, they're they're very subservient and they're kind of powerless victim characters rather than keep, uh, a character with their own uh, destiny and their own thoughts. Um, so it just really stood out to me that I really wanted to. Uh, I remember like thinking when I was watching it as a kid, like I want to make a story about her. Well, you've used the myth to kind of bring to light the the generational trauma of Korean women. And on my read through, there were some parallels for me personally. So I, I grew up in the South in America and now live here again. I've personally seen the damage that that generational trauma does to women. You know, my dad is still regarded as, as the head of the household. Um, ultimately, all decisions are his. And my mom has kind of bought into the structure. You know, my wife and I are equal partners in everything. So, so the cycle can be broken. You know, I, I'm not super fluent in, in Korean history. You know, where, where, is, where is Korea today um, in, in terms of, of that changing? Um, well, I would say we're still super patriarchal society. Um, and despite all the uh, current media with like K-drama and K-pop and, you know, they're very successful female artists and, you know, there's a lot of really great uh, female directors and authors who are just making such a great work right now, which are translated into English. And all of those things are really positive. Um, but still, we are very ingrained in that, like thousands of years of being in that patriarchal system that if a woman gets married, it's still uh, expected that, you know, they become that caregiver they you know take care of their husband and you know if they have children they would have to probably give up their career to take care of their children so all of these things are still uh, hard to break from um and i mean i haven't been living in korea in 30 years <laughs> right yeah yeah so, you know i'm just speaking from what i hear and what i see in the media and from what I know from my, you know, distant relatives. Um, but it still seems like uh, pretty much the same since, you know, I was a kid. It was kind of like the gender roles of women being uh, more of the caregivers of Serbian, uh, you know, member of the household. That is kind of the same still. Um, and I think it's very important to notice that uh, the Korea has the lowest birth rate of the world right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like less than that. like one one kid per uh, married couple. So, wow, it is really it's a very significant, a uh, huge problem in Korea right now, and you can understand why why that is because it's been very difficult for women to really be burdened by this whole responsibility of taking care of the entire family and just give up their own uh, need and desire for their own life. So 
Yeah. <laughs> As a Southerner, I'm kind of curious. Um, you know, you grew up in Korea, then uh, spent some time in Alabama in your teenage years. So, so did you find cultural parallels between the two um, with respect to women's roles, um, to family, to society, that sort of thing? Well, when I was living in Alabama, it was uh, like the first year that I moved to America. Yeah. So my English was pretty basically non-existent. So uh, I didn't really understand what was going on around me at all. So the people that I spent most time with were my step families and they were Korean and they were very, very traditional Korean family. Okay. Like they're, you know, the mother of my cousins, they, she was basically the caregiver. She took care of everyone on top of like having a job of her, her own business. So, you know, that family particularly was super, super traditional, even, even Korean standard. I am looking back, I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, so, but now that I am more aware of American culture, now that I've lived here for three decades, and I read some, you know, southern uh, novels and, you know, movies set in uh, the southern states. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I can definitely see the peril. And I think it's not really about, like, what state these stories and uh, this kind of culture is from. I mean, I think it's kind of depending on, you know, the individual family, how severe that, like, gender role plays. I mean, I know of a few people who live, you know, who are from like Midwest or like Northern, you know, more like liberal states, and they still have that kind of uh, divide between uh, genders. So, yeah. I mean, I think it all depends on um, what that particular person family was like when they're growing up, right? I mean, if yeah. their, their parents were very uh, strict about like, girls should behave like this or if they're very religious and they expected you to you know play into that uh rules based on their religion i think those things definitely play a huge role more than like what that particular region of the state is yeah well you mentioned in the afterward about having to create you were you started out trying to to create you had a fun action pack you know fantastical thriller but it became so much more than that. I seem to be interpreting all the books I'm choosing to do interviews about recently in an emotional direction, apparently. So like my, my fluff meter is broken. Um, but you started the book with a quote, which, which I think is really material to, to, to the whole thing. Um, and hopefully I'll pronounce everything correctly. But for those who carry Han in their hearts. So what does that mean, both widely for Korean women um, and kind of for you as an individual with this story specifically? Han is a very complex word. Um, I described it as uh, a longing for life lived fully and also to correct something that has been done to them that was very harmful to them. Um, they want to go back and fix it. Um, I think more I... Uh, live my life and more I'm aware of what's happening around the world. I really uh, don't think that this particular sentiment is uh, only for Korean women. I think, you know, you could apply that to any anybody who has lived 
in a society where they were constantly put down and constantly uh, had to fight for what they deserve um, harder than anybody they could see around them just because of like, you know, their background, their skin color, their religion, or their social uh, economic status, you know, all of these things uh, might hinder a person's opportunity to live their life fully. So if they, if you are put in that situation, I think they all understand what this feels like. Um, And I consider myself a hugely privileged person. Um, I, I mean, compared to my mother's generation, compared to even my own generation, I know there are a lot of women or men who, uh, for whatever reason, was not able to choose uh, some a lifestyle that makes them completely happy and be true to themselves. So yeah. I am one of the really lucky people, very, very privileged person who could choose my own lifestyle. You know, I am I am not married. I don't have kids. I uh, work full time as an artist and I have like completely designed my life to make sure that I can live this way, you know, and I know that there are so many people who cannot do that, even if they really want to and they really want to try to do it. Something really blocks it in their way that they can't do it. So um, I I want to acknowledge that, you know, it's not. uh it's not just for fun that I am making these stories. It, it really means something to me to explore these uh, injustice in the world and make sure that we really think about it and how it affects individual people. And I mean, like my story has a, a father figure who is very supportive of her, his uh, daughter, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I don't even think that this, that, that kind of father could have existed in Joseon era. I mean, this is a fiction fantasy. So, you know, in my fantasy, fantastical mind, I created this father who was very extraordinary in teaching her his daughter martial art and really support her career. You know, like he yep. acknowledges that she's better than him in martial art. I mean, that kind of father I don't think have existed, honestly, <laughs> in Joseon. But I made him in for that story. But even he couldn't fix her her uh, destiny. You know, he couldn't, in the end, help her all the way. So, you know, like, if individual person tries their hardest and really break their norm, it still is not enough, right? If the whole society that they live in is not supporting that decision. So I wanted to also explore explore that. Yeah, I, I was a little surprised um, during my read through, and this this could be my own interpretation of it, um, because you know you just pointed out the sort of the agency that Kai had that so many others didn't um, in, in reality. Um, but in, in a lot of the stories, inflection points, she still felt largely powerless. You know, as if she's kind of being constantly pulled by by the river of destiny, if you will. Um, is, is that an illustration of of Korean women kind of in the history as a whole to some extent? Yeah, I mean, I I am really admiring a lot of female uh, activists and writers and directors in Korea who are really fighting the good fight. You know. They, they're really putting themselves in a lot of dangers. There's still uh, a lot of uh, violence against women, especially if they're queer, uh, if they don't 
fits certain social norm. I mean, even I heard that if a woman doesn't wear makeup in Korea and like some men can attack them because they're like, you're not doing your best. You're not, you're not being what women should be like, you know? And that just like blows my mind that like, um, you know, they, they're in that kind of danger. And in uh, big corporations, there's a lot of scandals of like people uh, finding hidden cameras in female bathroom. Like it's, okay. it's really, it's really terrible. And, you know, especially if, uh, if there is actually a sexual violence, it's really unlikely that women in Korea would report it because it's still viewed as a huge shame. It's some, some somehow viewed as it's their fault. Like maybe they were not wearing the right clothes. They're not in the right place. Like, why are you walking down the street by yourself at nighttime? You know, all of this stuff still like, very discouraged for women to really come forward and speak out about these just in terrible stuff that's happening to them. So um, it is, you know, like I think a lot of uh, literature, especially American uh, literature and blockbuster movies, it's all about uh, people who are in, you know, terrible situation, like punching up and winning the victory like you know mm -hmm. like hunger game like oh my god like she did this she like fought the system and now yeah, you know girl power right it, it, yeah so and i'm like i'm reading all these books and yeah it's very fun but it doesn't really reflect our society it doesn't really reflect what the real struggle is like and i i think it's almost kind of like a false advertisement to keep making these kind of like you know empowering book you know yeah, <laughs> and yeah. i wanted to even though my book is also fiction is fantasy i wanted to deal with it deal with this situation in a more like realistic manner like what is what is it like to be that one woman who's always put down always something happens to her life that puts her right back evil or even worse situation that went where she started like how is she gonna live how is she going to find meaning in her life, even though she thinks that nothing can change? You know, all of these things are something that I want to figure out for myself and I want to figure out for all the people around me. So, you know, I wanted to really, uh, I mean, there's a lot more I, I want to say in this book. I really hope that I get the opportunity to write, my, make another book like this, or maybe I could make a sequel, you know, okay. yeah. it kind of ends. Um, I mean, it ends also in a kind of a happy ending, but yeah. I wanted to have a room for uh, imagination for the reader to know that th this isn't really the end, right? I mean, this is uh, this is just a part of her journey, right? I mean, yeah, and it's kind of ambiguous, like what really happens at the end too. So, I it was very intentional that I don't make it like. This is it. This is it. They're happily ever after. You know, I don't want to do that. Yeah, I mean, I I found my own reaction to it caused a lot of family reflection, like my own family reflection. Uh, my mind kept ruminating on how, you know, this perpetuation of of patriarchy is ultimately broken down. Like, how do we do that? How do we escape, for a lack of a better way of putting it, you know, as a society? And and I was indoctrinated into that structure um, as a kid. I, I overcame it super hyper macho, right? Um, 
how I was raised in, in a in a very rigid religious structure. And I still question what legacy that has on me as as a male, mm-hmm. as a partner, as a father. You know, Kaya is able to overcome it through ultimately through love. So mm-hmm. when you wrote this, was it was that about was that the out? You know. Uh, that you were kind of thinking for her, you know, you, you, you titled the, that chapter in the book Nirvana, um, without giving too much away. Right. Um, you know, what was love her out? I think love is part of it, but it's more about acceptance. Okay. I think when she accepted, you know, like at the end, she, you know, something like terrible happens to her or somebody she loves and she, she just repents. She's like, I'll do anything to just be this way. I, I would accept this life. I wouldn't do anything else. I will just be happy as it is. That's when things happen, like, for the better, you know? And yeah. I think, I don't, I don't know if this is a cultural difference. Um, I, I see there's, especially in Western uh, modern fiction, I see a lot of uh emphasis on uh fighting back and like chart your own just destiny you could do anything you know change your situation pull yourself by the bootstrap you know like you could do yep. anything and that is a really important message message but also i think a lot of things happen in life that is nothing to do with how much you tried or how much you want something Things happen in your life more than you can control. And I think it's really important that people understand this and accept the life as it is in order to grow and be accepting of their own life or, or love themselves. I mean, like it, it's it's kind of grand <laughs> theme and, uh, you know, it, you, people can live a whole life like trying to meditate on this kind of theme. but. I, I wanted to make sure that, like, uh, going, uh, accepting your own life as it is, is probably the most important thing you could do to love yourself or be happy. And that's what I wanted to get to at the end. Well, it's a, it's a love story, but it's also a queer one. You know, mm-hmm. how, how taboo would I assume that have been at the time? Um, I just don't have a, a footing uh, on, you know, Korean history and even even Korea now I don't I just don't know I mean it is still not widely accepted which is pretty weird to me because there's a lot of Korean comics about gay love like especially in girls comics I think it's the same in Japan um so like Gay love or queer love is almost exploited for that young teen readership. Yeah. You know, but in a wider society, it's still not accepted. It's still, you know, it's still common for people to get disowned if they come out to their parents. They like, especially if, um, I mean, I have several Korean gay friends and they, they are very lucky to have, uh, you know, accepting family, but even, even if they're accepted and they're like, they're allowed to live the life they are, they, there's still a barrier that they can't really talk to their parents about their relationship. Like it's still, it's almost like elephant in the room room that they don't, you know, they, they know that they, they know, but they don't talk about it, you know, it's that kind of situation. Um, 
So uh, there's uh, also a lot of movies uh, these days that uh, shows uh, queer love. Um, and they're very highly claimed and very well loved by the critics. But I don't know how much of that, those kind of claim changes things in, in real life for people. All right, let's take a quick break. What in the Sam Hill is happening right now? What is that? Yeah, what you You like bards? Yeah, what you Oh, you like band of bards. It's not my fault, you mumble. That makes sense. They're dropping some great new series right now. There's that one about a heavy metal guitarist in the 1970s with monsters, working class wizards. You know how we love monsters around here. And my friend Dakota Brown, he's working on a project, uh, Grandma Tilly's Hell Tech Mech with Lane Lloyd. I saw the preview for that. That is crazy. Jimmy even contributed to their anthology from the static and had Matt Sumo on the podcast to talk about his project, The Bardic Verses, which makes a lot of sense that the project landed there. Where can you find them? You need to get out more. They are in previews or you can visit their website, bandabars.com, for all the latest. Can we turn the music off now? Thank you. No more surprises, minstrels or anything like that, or I'll rent you out to the Ren Fair as a children's ride. Let's get back to the show. Well, looking at, at this from a visual perspective, um, it feels very uh, manoir to me structurally. Well, visually, mm-hmm. it kind of retains a footprint that looks like this, a more classic structure where you have ink washes or shan shui or, you know, mm-hmm. like mountains and water traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, I've looked at the body of your work on your website and you're a bit of an artistic chameleon of sorts. Yeah. So talk to me about how you created, you know, that visual language you wanted to explore in the Fox Maidens with all these varied sort of influence. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure this book looks very different from my memoir because yeah. it's a fiction, it's a fantasy. And I wanted to uh, have take this opportunity to really uh, dive into my illustration side of my skill. Um, I love uh, Japanese print. It's um, I own several books on these genre, and I uh, I've always admired um, how efficient these uh, artists back in the eight. eight 1800, they, they really developed this really nice, efficient style to depict the world. And uh, just visually, I, I find them just gorgeous. And I wanted to kind of mimic that style and also uh, color in a way. Uh, I, found, I found it a lot more challenging than I expected, but um, Almost American Girl, I colored it more kind of looser watercolor way, but I wanted to have a really strong design element and coloring in Fox Maidens. So I chose maybe a dozen color and I tried to use only those colors to kind of pare down the visual spectacle. Like I... It, it you know it was a really challenging a uh, task to pick just enough but not too much uh you know elements and i i cuz i wanted to make it uh easy to read i got to want an illustration illustration to be like too much 
that it gets in the way of reading the graphic novel. So um, I really had pretty clear idea when I started drawing this book at what how I wanted to look like. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but the the coloring part was really challenging because I wanted to pare down the color, but at the same time be able to uh, achieve like the wow effect when it needs to be. Um, And I wanted to make sure these colors I chose are going to be efficient enough for me to show like different time of the day, at nighttime, uh, fantastical scenes, all of these, or the flashback. Um, So it was a really fun and also very hard challenge for me to uh, draw this book. (laughs) I'm I'm really glad you broke some of that down because I had a question about that. Like totally, you know, you aren't relying on those those subtle shifts of color, you know, that we've we've come to expect, right? Where you you have these gradations in tone um, for highlights and stuff, um, but you also have these really nice color blocking moments where it's a it's just kind of a sepia tone, which to me, red. Some of those are in flashbacks, but they they read like moments almost to take a breath in the narration. Um, so how did you want to kind of use color in this story like that to, to break things up? Because you had those, there's color moments that you, you use the color to really make things stand out and punch um, within that limited range that you chose. Yeah, I think color is a huge tool uh, to signal the reader, like what the mood of the scene is. Yeah. So, uh, I wanted to um, have enough color to be visually exciting, but also it's not like too much. I mean, I get that reaction when I read some comics that are like way too colorful and it just uses like every color under the rainbow or if it has like way too much like neon tone or something like that. After reading maybe like a chapter, I I can't read anymore. Like my eyes are tired, you know? Yeah. So. I I I was also very conscious about like okay if it's nice scene I'm using these five colors or like if it's um flashback I'm using only sepia tone like I was very clear and I try really not to break away from that rule self-imposed rule um and also like color um to me color is really like important but also uh not what i'm really used to reading like in comics like most korean and japanese comics are black and white Uh, well the webtoons are all color now but when i was growing up they're all black and white so i'm just more used to reading uh black and white comics that like to me color sometimes just feels superfluous it's not needed okay um i actually had a lot of back and forth with my editor because when I first uh, drew a few uh, sample color sketches, um, I only used like maybe three color for the whole thing. And my editor was like, you need more color than this. So I had to really like think about adding more. Uh, but in the end, I think it, I, I am pretty happy with the colors I chose. And I think I was uh, very conscious, like, you know, every color I use in every page, I, you know, it wasn't like an accident or it was just like I was just going with whatever that felt, you know, at the moment. I actually really thought about each colors that I chose to use 
Well, I love uh, Gamijo's lettering, by the way. It's so good. You know, that sort of like red firebox is really, really <laughs> nice. I haven't seen that before. I'm getting a bit in the visual weeds, but um, did you make up the font there as well? Oh, no. <laughs> okay, I, okay. Yeah, okay. That, that font is, I didn't write any of the font that, that's in the book. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but I, I drew the, you know, the word balloons for different characters. Yeah. I really like that. It was a really nice touch. Um, well, I say it all the time, but tackling a graphic novel seems like such a daunting process to me. And this is a big one as well. You know, it's over 300 pages. So mm -hmm. how, do you, how does one structure their time to tackle something like that? You said three and a half years? That's a long time to be working on. Yeah. I mean, a lot of uh, well-known graphic novelists, they sometimes hire colorists. So at least that will like help them speed things up a lot. Um, okay. I colored everything by myself. Like I had a couple of assistants who just did a flat for me towards the, I, I did the first half of the book coloring myself. And I realized I will like, it will take me like five years. Like it was taking so long. So I actually had to hire somebody to help me towards the end. But um, this was a, uh, a huge learning curve for me. I've like this is my first fiction and this is also the longest book I've ever made. So I learned a lot by just doing it like trial by fire. Um I realized uh you know I tried to give like good like sensible de deadlines for my editor and also for myself, but I was never able to meet them. Like I <laughs> you know I will calculate by oh you know last day last week i did you know i inked like 15 pages so i can ink 15 pages every week and like you know a year from now i'll be done you know but you know sometimes you get sick sometimes like life something happens to you like you can't you yep. can't make that three day three pages a day deadline like it's you're not a machine you know so um i realized it's very important for you to build in that cushion of time and also um, don't beat yourself too much about it. Like if you can't make it, um, you know, like art is not like a manual job. You know, it's sometimes, you know, if you're in a good condition and you're just in the right mood that you could just crank out and every line you make is going to be perfect and you feel so good about yourself but there's days that everything you draw like totally looks like shit like it's yep, just like yep. there's nothing you can do about it you know yeah so i learned to be uh much more patient with myself and more graceful about you know days that doesn't work out and it's still a challenge. I mean, still sometimes I just, I hate, you know, my job and I, I just don't want to make any more comics ever again in my life. But, <laughs> you yeah. know, I have to remind myself like, oh, no, 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 you know, last week you felt great. Like, you know, just today's a bad day. <laughs> I, I get that. Like, I, I have an autoimmune condition and I, I feel that 100%. The good days, the bad day, I, I get that, that very, very well. Um. Well, most of your work thus far has been, it's been very personal. You know, the lens has been identity. You know, this is designated as a YA. So what does it mean to you to be able to get this in the hands of a younger reader as they are discovering who they are, finding their own place in the world? I can't imagine there was much similar when you were growing up. 
quite like this anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think that term YA, middle grade, all of these things are pretty new to me. Um, when I was growing yeah. up, we had children's book, like a chapter book, and their books. So there were no distinction between what was suitable for teenagers versus 20-year-old. Like, I read all kinds of books since I was like eight. I mean, I was allowed to go to the libraries. I was allowed to go to Banhabang, which is a Korean like comics rental shops okay. that were everywhere when I was growing up. So like my mom was a really busy working mom. So she couldn't just like, you know, tailgate me and just like pick things for me. You know, I, I was allowed to just go and read whatever I want. So like all of my favorite books growing up were not YA books. I was reading real books. Like my favorite books were like Gallet Letter <laughs> and like okay. Wuthering Heights. Like, and I was like middle school, you know, like, so I think uh, adults worry like too much about like what teenagers can understand and process. I mean, I think young yeah. people are totally capable of processing whatever books they're reading. I mean, they might not get exactly the same information or emotional reaction from uh, other adults, but that's the same with any any individual people, right? I mean, I am a 40-year-old woman and I read YA books. I might get a different reaction, but is that bad? Like it's, you know, why do we have to only make certain books? Why are certain uh, themes prohibited? to discuss in, in YA books. I think that is uh, actually more harmful, you know, to take these books away from younger readers just, just because you as an adult doesn't believe that they are capable of handling it. I think you should let them see for themselves, right? And um, I understand, I mean, there are certain books that are like just really violent or very like sexually explicit like maybe some of those things should be guarded but other than like really really extreme cases i think most books should be free for any any age uh readers can pick up um and i think the e earlier we start introducing these uh books and start uh thinking about these issues the the better off it will be for any 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 children growing up well, thank you, because that that's it's a soapbox of mine, and you articulated it better than I ever could. Uh, because I always get so annoyed as as the you know the father of a teenager, and in, in that YA or young adult designation sometimes drives me absolutely nuts. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think kids are, are perfectly capable. They they okay. The world we live in and what they have to absorb on a daily basis, and it's much worse than any any fiction can <laughs> depict. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm always trying to get a better barometer of where we are in comics in terms of representation. So during my Pride Month focus, I always ask about glass ceilings, you know, in terms of representation of Asian culture and people in comics, you know, where where are we? And if if the glass ceiling isn't broken, what would it look like in your mind? Uh, I think we're in a very interesting point in terms of uh, BIPOC representation and media. Uh, we're having a, such a renaissance, like hey heydays of, you know, Asian American st 
stories being made into TV shows and big, you know, blockbuster movies, and they're super successful. Um, I mean, that is amazing. Like, I never expected that would ever be the case when I was a teenager growing up in America. Um, and I feel extremely fortunate to be one of those authors who can really benefit from this uh, attention that we're getting. And especially with K-pop and K-drama being like so popular right now, I just feel really, really lucky. Um, but at the same time, um, I was just talking about this with um, other writers uh, yesterday. And, you know, somebody was talking about how like they, the editors expect the main characters of our stories to look like the author. So, okay. you know, if you're a white author, they expect their protagonist to be a white person. And if you're a uh, Korean American, they expect the protagonist to be an at least an Asian person. You know, it's just like, why? You know, it's like I if you're a good writer, you should be able to make a story about anybody. Right. And whoever the main character is going to be, what skin color what background it doesn't matter like that you're you as a author should would be part of that character no matter what because you're the one writing that person so i think it's very harmful actually to put that kind of box as a publisher or entertaining industry to make sure that you know the the content creator of this material should reflect exactly who they are i mean that is uh, that is very short-sighted and also kind of condescending too. Like you, you, you don't trust. Like you know, like a terrible Asian American story can be written by a, an a Asian American author, and same can be said about any any race, right? So, uh, or any gender. I mean, I was, you know, I, I read. Uh, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishigura um, for a book club. And we, we're just discussing how we're so impressed how well this Japanese men described like young girls dynamic. Like, you know, the central characters are, uh, you know, British young young women. And like they, he just described to the T like what that like angsty, you know, teenage like friendship dynamic is like in like a boarding school. I mean, you know, if you're a good writer, you should be able to write anything. So uh, I think we're not quite there yet to allow, you know, all kinds of authors from different backgrounds to just explore whatever they feel like exploring and just kind of separating the art from the maker. I mean, I think with the social media, especially, there's a huge problem of like, Shimushing the the creator with their art, and like you are kind of the product, especially on social media. Like you're expected to see the the maker of this book talking about themselves and like posting what they ate for breakfast. Like and you know all of these things are kind of like I I, I see it as a huge hindrance in terms of does the quality of work. Right. At the same time, sometimes I feel like there's a tendency for Americans to group Asian people into like this one big, large cultural mm -hmm. melting pot, right? 
I don't feel like we do that with, say, South America, right? Brazil, Argentina are viewed differently. And nobody confuses Finland and France, right? <laughs> um, you do a fair bit of speaking about Asian American culture and especially pop culture. So are we collectively taking a misstep by, by lumping it all together? You know, what, what constitutes proper representation? You, you've touched on it a little bit. Um, I think it has definitely gotten much better, actually. I mean, okay. I think in my 20s, like, a lot of people, a lot of Americans didn't even know, like, much about Korea at all. Like, they, you know, they just all assumed they were Chinese or Japanese. So I think now I think there is definitely more people who are distinguishing between all of these uh, countries. But I think... It's, I mean, I don't really fault people for confusing us. I mean, sometimes I get confused too. I don't know exactly who I'm talking to. Like I, you know, and it's not really that important to me. Like I will find out when I find out. It's like when I meet somebody, it's not important if they're Korean American or Chinese American. It doesn't matter, you know. Um, I like them as who they are. And if I like their work, it's because the work is good. uh, so I am seeing it actually in a positive way. Like it's, you know, it's gotten much better than when I first arrived here. And I think it will continue to get better. And uh, there's a lot of Asian American uh, authors and directors and makers talking about this issue. So uh, I think people are aware that we are all different and, you know, also, like, even if you can distinguish from Chinese American to Chinese, uh, Korean American, you still are up against certain stereotype on that particular ethnic group, right? I mean, you know, just because I'm Korean, like, I, I mean, I love spicy food. Let's just be clear. But not all Korean American like spicy food. Not all Korean American have like perfect skin or you know like it's you know it's all it's all stereotypes so i think we should be much more aware of what kind of stereotype you have when you uh come across certain piece of literature or or person well you you mentioned you dropped one recommendation there uh from your book group um and, and you've talked about it a couple of times here what are you seeing recently that that's inspiring you so who who should the listener Go do some more research if they want to learn more about, um, you know, the Korean women who are writing right now about this stuff. Mm. I just finished reading this book called The Fetishist by Catherine Min. It okay. just came out like last month or something. Yeah. Oh, my God. It just it blew my mind. It's so good. <laughs> She's so fearless. Like, I. I, I don't know if I can ever write a book like that, but I just like, I enjoyed it so thoroughly and it's so funny and it's so fierce. Uh, I highly recommend that book. Okay. Uh, another book is uh, Minor Feeling by Kathy Hong Park. Um, That's a sensational, sensational book and she talks about all kinds of uh, issues uh, about Asian Americans and uh, gender issues and all that stuff. So that's really cool. Um, what else am I reading? Oh, I I just re- started reading this book called How Do You Live? Um, 
by a Japanese author. It's a very long name. Can't remember. But um, it's I read it because I'm reading it because I watched Boy and the Heron by um, Studio Ghibli that just came out. And to be honest, I was kind of co- confused after I watched the movie. I was like, okay. what is happening here? I don't know if I really like this. Um, but because I love Miyazaki and, you know, like, I want to understand more about what he was trying to do in that movie. I heard that that movie's loosely based on this book. So I am started to read this book and it's a really good book. I think it's, uh, I think it's for a pretty young reader. Um, but I think definitely adults can enjoy it. And it's a really weird book, but I think this book kind of gives me like a lot of hope in like publishing like kind of weird stories in YA genre that doesn't really fit any particular uh, like trope or, you know, because it's just all over the place. So yeah, these three books I highly recommend to pick it up right now. Okay. Well, thank you. I think the tolerance definitely in for younger readers for weird is way higher than it is like old folks like me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, and I love that stuff. Um, but I think in general the 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 market there is is less lots weirder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> well. What else you got cooking? I ask that all the time, but given how much food has played a role in, in your work, perhaps it's more relevant statement than usual. <laughs> I am working on several different projects. Um, so I am writing all kinds of new story ideas for my next books. I don't know if they're anywhere near uh, really uh, ready for me to talk about it in public. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, so right now it's like kind of, the world is my oyster. I could like do whatever I want. And yeah, it's also kind of nerve wracking because like I, you know, I haven't really been in like this kind of creative, like brainstorming mode in like last eight years. I I was basically working on one book after the other without any yeah. break. So it's exciting and also pretty nerve wracking time right now. <laughs> Well, where can people find you online? Where would you like them to find you online? So I have one social media. Uh, it's Instagram at Robin Ha Art. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Um, well, one of the things I love about comics is its ability as a medium to take a, a neurodivergent kid like myself and make me process things emotionally. I can't explain why it does it. It it just does it. And the Fox Maidens is not at all what I expected it to be, or or rather. It was that, and it was a whole lot more. And that can only be found by a creator who's willing to, to start off with a premise and not to follow it necessarily where they want it to go, but where it needed to go. So it had so many delicious layers to it. I hope everyone who's listening, do yourself a favor and go pick it up because I, I thought it was a delightful book. So, Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Well, Robin, thanks so much for hanging out with me on the show today. It's, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. This is Byron O'Neill, and on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti, thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Take care, everybody. Bye. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. 
please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.